The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. I'm in Broadwick Street in bustling Soho in the heart of London. Broadwick Street is where we always record the podcast, in the Soho Radio studios here. But I'm outside today because it has a special connection with one of the subjects of this week's episode. Because this used to be Broad Street. And it was here at number 28 that William Blake was born in 1757. The house no longer stands and instead I'm at the base of a tower block on the same site. But it was on this spot that Blake's family ran a hosiery and haberdashery business in the house from 1752 to about 1812. Blake lived here at different moments in his life and staged his ill-fated, poorly received one-man exhibition here in 1809. 210 years on, he has another and far more acclaimed, indeed rapturously received, solo exhibition now at Tate Britain. And I went to the gallery to talk to Martin Myrone, a senior curator of pre-1800 British art at the Tate, who curated the exhibition. Martin... Very many of Blake's images are produced on a very small scale and are prints. Can you tell us something about why that is? You know, why aren't we seeing big oil paints in here? Yeah, yeah, but Blake was primarily a a maker of prints and of watercolours, which are generally on a small scale. There aren't many of his works, and very few works in this exhibition, which are bigger than an A3, A4 piece of paper. So, you know, he worked on a small scale. He didn't have the opportunity to work on a larger scale, although... Um, as we touch on in this exhibition and explore at several points in this exhibition, he wanted to work on a larger scale. I mean, he wanted to be a painter like Raphael and Michelangelo. He talks about his prints and his watercolours being frescoes. He certainly calls them frescoes because, well, because of particular qualities about their, their techniques and his emphasis on draftsmanship and on line, but also because within these tiny works, there's the ambition, there's the hope, the aspiration that he will be able to paint on a gigantic scale. So that really is, is one of the things we want to emphasise here, is that what you see today, what you're familiar with as Blake's works on this rather small scale, I mean, that, 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 these he thought of as almost kind of sketches for larger, never-completed works. Um, he's also, of course, a maker of books, and in the show we're including um, 11 bound copies of his prophetic books or illuminated books, these works have really kind of sat at the heart of Blake's reputation, particularly among literary scholars, but more generally in the kind of the cultural history, um, because they are his most original works. He produced them using his invented method of relief etching, which we still don't quite understand, that allowed him to combine text and images on single pages, it allowed him to print in colour, and to create very kind of rich colours and textual effects. I mean, the, the prophetic books in the 1790s, America Prophecy, Europe of Prophecy, um, the, books, the, the Book of Eurism, uh, these are singular uh, works in the history of art and they you know, really lie at the heart of his reputation. But what we've wanted to do in this show is provide a context for them and to emphasise Blake's role as a visual artist. Although the scholarship on Blake has been dominated by literary scholars who are interested in Blake as a poet. Um, over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been quite a significant shift to thinking about Blake's, the visual dimensions of Blake. Uh, and that, there's a practical side of this. That, that's how he made a living. He was a commercial engraver. Um, it was his real passion. And when he had spare time, it was dedicated to painting watercolours. He saw watercolour as his primary medium. Um, but it's also because the illuminated books, although they're created as books and they include text... They do, they, even the text itself has a visual quality. He's not using a standard typeface. He's actually drawing 
and writing with a free hand and every dot and curl and mannerism in his, in, in his written um, printed text um, has been interpreted as having a visual quality. So in these various aspects, there are good reasons for, for thinking of Blake as a visual artist. But it's also the case that um, in his lifetime, um, he sold very few of his illuminated books. Nobody really understood them. They were baffled by the imagery. Uh, uh, very few people bought them, but the imagery appealed much more. We're standing in front of an image from the first book of Eurism now, and it's testament to one of the most extraordinary artistic imaginations in British art history, or in, in any art history. Yeah. Tell us what we're looking at. Yeah, well, this, this is a book, this is a page from one of his illuminated books, from the first book of Eurism, which was printed in 1796 originally. Um, but this is a later impression, this is a later version of the print. It's one of a, quite a number of prints that he made based on pages from the Illuminated books where he has masked out the original text. So originally, this and other images from this group um, would have been printed with Blake's own poetry, but he's extracted the image, he's masked it out. And I think it's partly with the recognition that within his own lifetime, even his most avid collectors, even the people who really kind of bought into the Blake myth and believed that he was a great genius and there were, he was creating great art... Even they struggled with the poetry. The poetry is difficult. It's got it's, uh, a lot of it involves his, in, his, his invented mythology that nobody at the time really understood. Um, and if you look at a page of an illuminated book, as you can do in this exhibition, it's really hard to read. You know, even with the reading glasses on, it's really small, um, and it's in Blake's writing. It's not clear typeface, um, so it's obscure in, in various ways. Um, later in life. The print that we're looking at was printed around 1818, so 12 years after it was originally created. Um, Later in life, Blake found something of a market amongst rare book collectors and fellow artists, and his imagery from the illuminated books becomes more richly coloured, even involves gilding. There are examples here where you see there's gold on the page and the page glitters. And in this case, yes, in the original, the first book of Eurism from 1796, there was a poetic context, but it's rarely that the images um, actually literally illustrate the text. In this case, we have a, a skeletal figure um, and a wild-haired figure, both crouching in the midst of flames. The skeletal figure seems to be kind of chained down. There's some sort of context for this in the book of Eurism, which is about, it's a play on words around reason and about freedom and liberty and the struggle for freedom, full of kind of agonistic imagery and struggle. But when Blake extracts the image in 1818 and reprints it, he then adds a new caption. This is the caption that you can see underneath, everything is an attempt to be human, is not from the book of Eurism. It's not from his original poem. And it's not from any other poem that he wrote. So it's a little caption that he's written creating a new context for this or a new point of departure as we look at this image. And Blake, I mean, although Blake has been assessed quite rightly as a major poet, and although Blake's art has been interpreted in depth, in great detail, in connection with his own mythology and his own poetry and his own imagination, nonetheless, I think this this shows Blake being primarily a visual artist. He's extracting the image away from its literary context. He's providing a caption, which is more like a modern caption, a title, rather than a full-blown piece of poetry. And he's depending upon visual impact. He's expecting that we, as a viewer, will be able to get some sense of meaning, some sense of the significance, some sense of feeling from this, without knowing who these characters are, um, without knowing whether this is from Shakespeare or Milton or from the Bible or from Blake's imagination. Um, we don't need that. What we see is an image which clearly communicates some sense of horror and violence and constraint. Um, and that's true across his work. I think, um, you know, yes, we, we have titles, 
sometimes they're Blake's titles. More often they're titles which have been attributed to these works later on by later scholars for good reasons or sometimes for less good reasons. Um, a lot of the time we just don't know what these works are called. And that's, that's important in the experience of the exhibition as a whole, that we're actually allowing everybody to encounter these works afresh and to see them as primarily visual statements uh, and you know, recover Blake as a, as, a, as a visual artist. And that also means accepting that he, he may be ambivalent, he may be ambiguous, it may be that there are ways of interpreting his art in contrary ways. Um, let's talk about his position in the art world of his time, because he went to the Royal Academy, but he had very strong views about, for instance, Sir Joshua Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Where did he fit in, if he fitted in at all? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, the, the exhibition here opens with a room about Blake at the Royal Academy, not... Blake is an apprentice of Bazir in the 1770s, um, where other exhibitions have started. I mean, he did train as an engraver, so he had that craft, uh, that skill at the base of his commercial career. Um, but we start with the Royal Academy um, because uh, I think it was really important to him, actually, and he wasn't quite as he wasn't quite the outsider that we like to think he is. Uh, the Royal Academy was important because. It, when he entered it, there was a moment of real optimism about British art. There was the expectation that modern British artists, because of the Royal Academy, because of the promise of what Britain was becoming as a world power, um, could end up rivaling Raphael and Michelangelo and producing great public schemes. There was also a sense that contemporary British artists could engage with contemporary life and contemporary politics. That's something that Blake learned from um, works from the 1760s and 1770s that were exhibited that were you know, by, works by James Barry and by other artists at the time, which were quite politically engaged, um, and probably, and in some cases, quite unconventional and kind of oppositional um, politics that a lot of um, um, artists at the time had. So you know, there is that moment of really kind of uh, hope, expectation that contemporary British artists could rival the artists of the past. Now, all falls apart from one reason or another. Um, partly because of the fallout of the American War of Independence and Britain getting a more uneasy sense of its status in the world, and then the French Revolution and the Long Wars and this kind of economic decline. Um, But it's also because the art world, certainly Blake viewed it, became more and more corrupt. Uh, And and a lot of what we think about Blake's views on the Royal Academy come from a bit later in life, after the failure of his one-man show in 1809, when he becomes very embittered with the art world, um, and he has a lot of very negative comment about the Royal Academy and about art institutions and about the art establishment. Um, But I think earlier in his career, um, he still had some expectation that, that he could become not part of the establishment, but he could be, his ambitions as an artist could be, could be fulfilled. Um, and it's notable that one of the great successes in his career is his illustrations to the publication of Robert Blair's The Grave, this older poem that's published by a, a publisher, engraver friend, Robert Cromack in 1808. Um, and his illustrations for that are very well received. And if you look in the beginning of that book, there's a statement of most of the Royal Academicians coming out in support of Blake. So Blake was not quite the wild outsider that latterly we, we've tended to think he is or his later reputation suggested he was there was there were a lot of people within the art establishment who actually thought he was an oddball he was a strange figure but he was a figure of real talent now there are a number of books actual books in this exhibition and we're now looking at what must be the most famous of all blake's poems well arguably um and it's tiger tiger tell us about this what we're looking at yeah th- th- this is this is one of the the group of books that we're showing in the exhibition um in the bound form that that it would have been in blake's lifetime and we're thinking this is an early binding like a number of the works here as they were bound in, in the early 19th century and it is tiger tiger from the songs of innocence and of experience um which um remains among the best loved poems in the English language um, and Songs of Innocence and of Experience was 
was, in Blake's terms, a bestseller even in his lifetime. He only printed a small number of copies, probably no more, more than 30 in his lifetime, but he did actually manage to sell them, which is unusual for Blake because certainly the more the lengthier prophetic works didn't find much of an audience. But these are short poems, comments on uh, morality and, and social suffering and uh, nature, and in this case, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, a reflection on this terrifying um, uh, uh, creature from the woods, the tiger. Um, of course, what's striking about this, I mean, one thing that's striking is this is a really tiny book. I mean, we're so used to seeing these images on screens, projected as slides, reproduced, and yet this is, this, this is fit in your pocket. It's a tiny, tiny volume. And that's extraordinary that so much of Blake's epic cosmic vision fits into a tiny format. That's one thing which is striking. The other thing which is very striking, very intriguing about this is that you know, tiger, 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 burning bright, a terrifying image. And yet, at the bottom of it, there is what looks like a kind of household cat. <laughs> it's really kind of cuddly, furry, not very scary creature. And this has been a point of discussion within Blake's scholarship a great deal, because Blake very rarely illustrates his poems very directly. What you see in the margins of his texts, um, there's a kind of interplay, a playfulness and a, com- and a complication in the way that the images relate to the text. And yeah, there's lots of ways of interpreting this. Either Blake just couldn't draw a tiger very well, and this is he ends up do, doing the neighbor's cat instead, um, <laughs> or there, or there, or there is a kind of comment here about you know, creating a, a safe image out of what's a rather terrifying poem. Um, I mean, I'm also fascinated, and I think there's still stuff to think about here about the format of the songs of innocence and of experience, with these dense texts and these marginal illustrations, often very decorative. He's clearly looking at children's illustrations, at children's books, um, even at embroidered samplers and decorative art of the time. Um, there's, there's a kind of decorative quality of the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, which, which is very appealing. Now, later on in the exhibition, you'll also see in the first published biography in Blake's lifetime from 1806, the poem Tiger, Tiger on an ordinary printed page. Um, so even within Blake's lifetime, and relatively early in his lifetime, this poem and the Songs of Innocence and Experience more generally was becoming quite well known and quite well admired. But these, this is Blake at his most digestible as well as his most um, uh, kind of memorable. Now we're in the presence of a much more fearsome beast in this case. Tell us what we're looking at here. All right, well, this, is, this is the great red dragon and the beast from the sea. It's one of... Um, uh, Blake's many illustrations to the Bible in watercolour. It's, it's still not much bigger than an A3 piece of paper. Well, it is probably smaller than a piece of A3 paper, but it represents a gigantic biblical creature, a many-headed muscular figure striding over a green multi-headed figure rising out of a black sea. Um, the red creature at the top has massive wings. And it's, it's, a, it's a work which is... This is, this is we'd like to think of it, this is heavy metal Blake. This, <laughs> this is Blake, the sign of the beast Blake. Blake indulging uh, uh, his visions drawn from Book of Ezekiel and the Book of Revelations. Um, and Blake is most extraordinary, is most cosmic, um, and really without parallel as a creator of outlandish terrifying, weird imagery. And it's the kind of imagery which has lasted, which appears on album covers and book covers and graphic novels. It encapsulates an idea of, of creative freedom and kind of graphic imagination, graphic experimentation. And it's here as part of a large group of works that were originally owned by um, Thomas Butts, who was a you know, long-term patron of Blake. And I think what's striking, one of the things which is really striking, is you look at an image like this, which is so outlandish and 
crazy and nightmarish. And you think, well, Thomas Batts, who bought this, had a role in the master's office. That was, he was a civil servant. He, he ran a girls' school with his wife. He had a sideline as a coal merchant. You know, for, he, was, he, he was earning £500 a year, which was actually quite a good amount of money in the 1790s when he was buying works like this. So this rather kind of intriguing and I think probably important point of contrast there between Blake, the outlandish figure, Blake who's indulging, seems to be indulging his imagination and creating outlandish images, and the people who are actually giving him support, civil servants and um, well-off gentlemen. And, and, yeah, what do we make of that? I don't know. I think part of it is um, what those patrons found in Blake was a kind of fulfilment of what was otherwise being um, stultified in contemporary life, right? That, in many ways, Britain is becoming a wealthier nation, it's becoming a world nation, its empire is expanding, and there's war, and there's suffering, but then there's a middle class and an upper class who are doing very well out of it, and they looked at Blake as a kind of outlandish figure now, uh, who represents an idea of creative authenticity, of, of realness, um, uh, and those, that, that idea of Blake, I think, has been very important. It's one of the reasons why you know, his work has lasted, why people have kept referring to his work, and artists and creative people, but and anybody who kind of believes in imagination keeps returning to Blake, generation after generation, and discovering something different in Blake. And it is because he seems to represent an idea of freedom, an idea of, of creative authenticity. But that also creates a sense of tension as well. And all, all Blake's patrons he ends up arguing with, falling out with, because whatever George Cumberland, who used to work in an insurance office and then inherited, or John Flaxman, who was the most fashionable contemporary sculptor, or Thomas Butts, the civil servant, whatever they found in Blake was also a source of anxiety and difference between them, that what they liked was Blake being independent and difficult and believing in his own vision. But that also meant living with him or working with him or getting him to do work for you was a, was a difficult task. Um, and a lot of his patrons do comment that he seems to shoot himself in the foot. He seems to make, himself, make life difficult for himself. Now we're in front of another work which is among his most famous images. And it's called Newton and it's about Isaac Newton but this is not a res- recognisable image of, of Isaac Newton by any means. No, no the, uh, we, we know this is called Newton. This is a title which, in this case, comes, comes from Blake and from um, uh, original documents, so we know this is, this is Newton. But, uh, no, what we see is not a portrait of the, of the great scientist, but the figure of a, a naked, classically muscular man with tight blonde curls... Um, sitting down, leaning over a geometric diagram, and he's using calipers to measure it out, um, and he seems to be sitting on some sort of coral reef, a multicoloured rocky formation, and behind him is this deep turquoise background. Um, this is one of uh, a group of 12 large colour prints that Blake seems conceives in about 1795, though he prints this in 1805. He sold a full set of 12, it seems, to Thomas Butts, the civil servant who was his long-term patron. He sold pairs or groups of this series to, to other people. And um, although it's a series of 12 prints, there isn't a single theme. He draws from Milton, he draws from Shakespeare, he draws from his own imagination. And in this case, is presenting a kind of spiritual portrait of Newton. Not a literal portrait, but a spiritual portrait. Um, they're produced using a uh, colour printing medium. We're not, still not quite sure how he did it, but he seems to have produced these as monotypes. So he used a kind of sticky paint medium, painted it onto a board and then printed from that and then used paint and watercolour and ink to enhance that. So what you end up with is a very 
richly textured and strongly coloured, very painterly image, uh, which you could reproduce two or three times, not that many times. So it's, it's a print, but it's also a painting. Blake referred to it as fresco, and what you see is a really richly textured surface, which you couldn't, you couldn't produce this by hand. That mechanical element of printing from the monotype was really important for creating these, these kind of natural, organic surfaces. And that's, that sort of organic textural complexity is important to the theme of this image as well. What we see Newton doing is leaning over, using his intellect, measuring the world in abstract terms, in abstract forms, in, through geometry... And the suggestion is that this is Blake critiquing the idea of reason, the idea of the reasoning scientist who turns his back on this complex, intricate, rich natural world and instead concentrates on the life of the mind and the brutal abstractions that that involves. So he's shown in this deep, what is it, a cave? Is he underwater? But there is the idea of this enlightenment figure in darkness. And that's a, that kind of a paradoxical claim that, that Blake is, is setting out here, that actually what appears to be human reason, what appears to be the progress of science and philosophy, is actually leading us um, down into the depths of, 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 of obscurity and, and a lack of enlightenment. Is that an expression of fear? Because I know that Catherine Blake, Blake's wife, said that he was away in paradise, you know, he would, he, he, he would disappear into reverie. Mm. Is, is, is Blake... Does Blake feel that the Enlightenment science progress in that direction is somehow a threat to the imagination? Yeah, I think fundamentally it is. And this, this is, is, as much as Blake's work is open to interpretation, he's pretty fundamentally, I think it's pretty clearly set against materialism, um, against commerce, against empire, against a kind of reasoning, the, the triumph of reason. What he believes is in the spirit, in freedom and in liberty, however you interpret that. Um, and you know, as we show in the, in the exhibition, it's a very real issue for him because commerce intrudes upon his creative life. He has to make a living. So he's doing work which is calculated and aimed at a market and has to do that. And the people who seem to prosper around him are people who can, you know, as much as Newton, say, use reason and calculate in order to work out what their market is and aim for it. Whereas what he's arguing for and what he sets out is the idea of the inspired artist, the artist who is able to pursue his own vision. Let's talk more about Blake's response to the world around him because he lived in tumultuous times. And there are, you know, obviously the most obvious worldwide event in that time was, uh, was the French Revolution. Mm. But how did he respond to, you know, how does an artist who is exploring such an extraordinary range of um, visual imagery respond to the very real... Uh, global situation, this, what we would call the geop- geopolitical situation mm. of his era. Yeah, no, 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 Blake, Blake was deeply engaged with the politics of his time in the sense that he works historical events and real places and real, real moments in time into his imagery, into his poetry. However, cosmic and um, wild it might seem to be, there's often references to specific moments, specific places, real things that have happened, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, historical figures, figures from the present day. Um, and so it, you know, that is very much part of his mythology. Um, but I mean, th- th- he, he was a radical figure. He was associated with Mary Wollstonecraft and Joseph Johnston, a lot of, kind of uh, left-leaning, as we would see them, figures in the 1790s who responded very positively to the French Revolution and Blake himself in Europe a prophecy 
you know, sees the revolution in France as setting a precedent for global revolution and transformation. But we also have to remember alongside that that he is working those themes into a very personal mythology that was obscure to most people. And um, you know, after that initial wave of general enthusiasm in Britain for the French Revolution, uh, if the statements that he made in poetry about the French Revolution, about the end of tyranny, if he'd made them in a more public format, um, if, he'd, if he'd been noisier about it, he would have been arrested. And that didn't happen. You know? So he is, you know, as much as he's a radical figure and as much as there is a spirit of revolution which is clearly expressed in his work and as much as that has inspired later revolutionaries, I mean, he wasn't a public figure in the 1790s. I mean, he was working in the illuminated books. Small, they're difficult to read, they have very small circulation, um, and even those people who read them um, in the 1790s didn't really understand them anyway. So what he promises is a revolution of the mind rather than a kind of an active, practical revolution. Now, in 1809, he staged an exhibition in his family house in Broad Street in Soho in London. Tell us about the show and what was the reception like? Yeah. Well, we're making quite a lot of the one-man show of 1809 in the exhibition. It's a, it was a real turning point in his career. Um, uh, most of the Blake scholarship is focused on the 1790s and his revolutionary books, but actually, if you think about the larger picture and his aspirations as a, as a painter, as an artist, 1809 has a really kind of important uh, role to play. He'd had some success, briefly, with his illustrations to um, The Grave, which went down very well and got support of lots of royal academicians, lots of you know, positive critical response. Um, but he felt a bit betrayed by Cromek, the publisher, and he was worried about um, um, a rival project that Cromek had set up. He, they were both doing images of, of uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Pilgrims, um, and Blake wanted to advertise his work and to set out his claims as a visual artist. So he gathers a group of his works in the upstairs rooms of 28 Broad Street, uh, now Broadwick Street in Soho, um, and advertises and produces a very wordy catalogue describing these works, hoping that what he shows there, the paintings that he exhibits there, will win him a reputation and set out his claims as a painter of grand pictorial schemes with real political and public import. Um, what actually happens is that almost nobody goes, and there's a single completely negative review which dismisses Blake um, as an unfortunate lunatic, uh, it's really brutal, isn't it? I mean, it attacks, every, it attacks the work on pretty much every level. Yeah, it says he's technically incompetent, you can't see the pictures, you can't understand the pictures, um, this guy is just, you know, a madman. That is, that, there's no way of understanding him. Um, and Blake is pretty flattened by this. And what we've done in the exhibition is we've recreated one of the upstairs rooms where Blake would have held the exhibition um, on, in, you know, above a haberdashery shop, the family haberdashery shop in Broad Street, um, in Soho um, and so we see Blake's works installed here in uh, we know the dimensions of the room so we've recreated that it's a low ceiling we've got sash windows we've got a creaky wooden floor uh, it's not a clinical gallery setting it's not the gallery setting that you normally see Blake's works in today but rather it's a domestic interior and that I think you get a sense of I mean, perhaps you get a sense of why Blake's contemporaries struggle to understand his work. You see it in a, in a setting like this, and the strangeness of the art, the intensity of the imagery, even on a small scale, uh, becomes all that much greater. Um, the two key exhibits, catalogue numbers one and two in Blake's catalogue, are allegorical visions of Pitt, the Prime Minister, and Nelson, Admiral Nelson, who'd both died recently, um, guiding biblical monsters, bringing chaos and destruction to the world. But the paintings themselves are less than a metre high each. 
mean, there's some you know, kind of cabinet pictures. Um, and we've um, used digital projection here to restore the paintings more to how they would have looked like um, originally, to kind of bring them back to life. So again, it's just that, that sense that, uh, yes, there's Blake who's familiar from web pages and from tote bags and coffee mugs and fridge magnets and everything else, but then there's the Blake that you actually encounter in the flesh, um, who is you know, perhaps all the more surprising than, than you expect him to be. And I mean, when you see these two illuminated works that you've that you've sort of attempted, as you say, to sort of restore the original colours, mm. and you see how teeming they are with imagery, yeah. you can see that it could be an overload for somebody. Yeah. If somebody isn't does not understand this imagery, and they're confronted with this extreme burst of imagery, yeah. you really can see how it, it could confound them. Yeah. No, I mean, there is a kind of leap of faith with Blake that, for his friends, he is a great genius. They, they don't necessarily understand him. They don't necessarily understand the imagery. And lots of his contemporaries, lots of his followers and his enthusiasts, his collectors, say, well, I've tried reading the poetry. I don't really understand it. But the pictures are really good. <laughs> Though, again, that sense of you know, emphasising Blake as a visual artist and, and Blake, where you, even where if, the, if the, um, uh, the poetry is so often obscure and difficult, it's important, but alongside that, there are images which do speak very immediately and very directly. And they might be overwhelming, they might be baffling, but something is going on. I mean, something is, something is there to, to, to grab you and grasp you. It's interesting, isn't it, that? Because he, in so many ways, he remains very inscrutable today. A lot of these personages, these, this personal mythology of his, it, it, it remains out of our reach. We, we don't, don't really know his motivations behind lots of it. No, no. Uh, do, in a way, is that the attraction that there is so much for us to, to pick apart yeah. and there's so much scope for our own imagination? Absolutely. I mean, Blake has been interpreted in every way possible, from the far right to the far left and across the political spectrum and across um, generations from beat poets through to you know, nationalists. I mean, there, there's, there's so many myriad ways of interpreting Blake um, and extracting something, something from him because his work remains ambiguous. I mean, it is about a play. Um, uh, there are uncertain, the images are uncertain, the images may are suggestive and there are ways of interpreting yourself and interpreting your own values at every turn. And uh, one of the ways in which I find him such a fascinating figure and, and uh, which, which emphasises his prominence in British life, but also the, the sort of trickiness of his work, is the fact that Jerusalem is sung in churches every weekend at weddings, yeah. you know. And yet it's a really difficult text, isn't yeah. it, Jerusalem? I mean, yeah, you know. well, I mean, the words that we know as Jerusalem are actually from the poem Milton, so it gets more complicated than that. But you're absolutely right. The words that we know as Jerusalem... Um, are, have been used for every purpose possible. You associate them with the last night, the proms, but they also, I mean, there's a kind of strong left tradition of reclaiming it as a, as a kind of national anthem. Um, so, uh, I mean, absolutely right that, that really it, um, um, there is something, something for everyone, which is an awful cliche, but um, it's kind of important because I think, you know, this, this is suggesting the way that the, the role of the artist is changing, and Blake exemplifies that, that the artist is no longer there to produce concrete ideas or to serve a patron, but the artist is there in order to explore the imagination and the possibilities of creativity. Um, and that creates a tension with his patrons, but it also creates a new sense of possibility about what art might be. And especially when art was so codified, in, you know, the, the genre system. Mm. You know, where the hell does Blake fit in with all that? I mean, that makes Blake a very modern artist. I think that, that's, a really, that's a really kind of key point, that we can think about Blake as being a founding figure in modern art, not because his art, the imagery is necessarily modern in itself and its formal means, but because um, it does have that ambiguity and because it sits outside a kind of codified system, that it is addressing the imagination and addressing the, 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 the possibilities of, of, of vision.
Now, one of the interesting aspects that you've emphasised in the catalogue and elsewhere is, is this idea that um, Blake very much collaborated with his wife, Catherine. She would colour his plates. She was, she was very much a collaborator. Yeah. Um, we're looking at an image now in which she had a hand. So tell us more about this. Yeah. We're right at the end of the exhibition. The exhibition ends with Blake's great prophetic book, Jerusalem, and with a fantastic selection of watercolours from the Dante series. But we're also ending here with yeah, this series of watercolours for Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which he worked on the last three years of his life unfinished series um, um, and which um, 28 uh, designs here taking you through the story of Pilgrim's Progress one of the most widely read books in, in the English language second only to the Bible I think in the, in the 18th century and tracing a spiritual journey um, and these are works which we think are really important and actually contain some of Blake's most fantastic single images including this image of Christian in the harbour in which the figure of Christian is sprawled out within a, within a, a kind of um, a, a, a little hut and there's an extraordinary prismatic rainbow appearing above, above him. Um, the sort of it's really psychedelic. Yeah, it's a psychedelic image of spiritual revelation. Um, but this series has been rather demoted within the canon of Blake's works. It's not had a lot of attention from Blake's scholarship for several reasons, one of which is this is Blake illustrating another poet's writing, another writer's um, writing, rather than his own imaginative work. But Blake is a great interpreter, a really interesting interpreter of other people's work. I don't think that diminishes their, their importance. Um, because it's a late work and people have tended to focus on the 1790s and that revolutionary moment. But also, importantly, because as you say, um, it's always been understood since these were catalogued for the first time in the 1860s, that Catherine coloured them, that Catherine may have worked on them and, and introduced the colouring. And that's meant that they've, they've not always had the status that, um, that you would expect such a of um, strong series of images to have. To, to have. Um, they're now in a private collection. They were formerly in, in, a, in the Frick collection in New York and were deaccessioned and, and went onto the art market. Um, and I think that you know, there's a story there which is about the way Blake's works have been valued um, and the way that Catherine's role, although it's, it's kind of been understood that she's important, but it's never really been emphasised in the sense of if Blake... Um, uh, if Blake's work was finished off or coloured by Catherine then that means it's a less important work I'm not sure that we want to say that here and it's been important for us to include these works at the end of the show because we think they are really, it's a really strong series um, but also because it allows us to bring Catherine back into the frame again and the show opens with um, Blake's self-portrait and an image by him of Catherine Blake um, and we set out pretty clearly that uh, from the date of their marriage in 1782, it's only really then that Blake starts to emerge as an original artist. I mean, up to that point, he's been an art student, he's a jobbing engraver, but it's only after that marriage with Catherine that he starts to explore uh, his own imaginative art, um, and they remain married until Blake's death in 1827. Catherine has a big role in ensuring his legacy as well, so she is a constant figure within his life. She helps him with printing, she helps him with colouring, and is there as a moral support. So you know, this is a, you know, a big monographic exhibition about a major male artist, a kind of heroic figure in the history of art, uh, but we don't want it to be that you know, the women in his life are just a model or a mistress or some kind of figure hovering in the background. We do want to say that that creative partnership and that lifelong partnership with with Catherine was important. Um, and it's really, this is the beginning of a story. I think there are still things, things, things to explore and to think about a bit more about how any artist depends not just on their own imagination, not just on, on their own means, but also on their friends, on their family, or indeed their life partner, um, in order to become uh, an artist as extraordinary and as memorable as, as, as Blake became. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you very much.
William Blake is at Tate Britain in London until the 2nd of February 2020. You'll be able to read our review of the exhibition in next month's print edition of the Art Newspaper. We'll be back talking New York mega galleries after this. The Venice Glass Week, now in its third year, is fast becoming a fixture of La Serenissima's arts calendar. With the aim of celebrating, revitalising and sustaining the tradition of glassmaking, the festival stages more than 180 events at 150 venues around Venice, Murano and Mestre. This year there was a new award, Bonham's Prize for the Venice Glass Week, which aims to inspire original and high-quality projects in the field of artistic glass. The first winner was the Barbini Specchi Veneziani Workshop, the oldest glass mirror makers on Murano, for its project Materia Eteria, Ethereal Matter, as the sponsor of the prize, Bonham's International Head of Modern Decorative Art and Design, Dan Tolson, explained, The judges were hugely impressed with the quality of the work. These are 14 exceptional pieces made in collaboration with 10 glass masters and 4 designers, which display both traditional and innovative approaches to glass. And we were all struck by the ethos behind the project, its entrepreneurial vision, ambition and inspiring spirit of openness and collaboration. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, the Pace Gallery is opening a spectacular new eight-floor space on West 25th Street in New York this week. This new Pace HQ, which has been in the works since 2015, occupies some 75,000 square feet. It houses around 600 works in open storage alone, and there are four different exhibition spaces within it, plus a sculpture garden and a performance space. It opens with shows of the work of David Hockney, Alexander Calder, Ito Barada, and a group of Fred Wilson chandeliers, amongst other things. But it's not the only gallery expanding in the Chelsea area. Kasmin is opening another space this autumn that connects to its flagship space on 28th Street, and Gagosian is renting 7,900 square feet next to its existing property on 24th Street, which is opening next year. Also unveiled next year is Housen Worth's latest project. They're tripling their space on 22nd Street. And then David's Werner is opening 50,000 square feet of new gallery on 21st Street. Our Deputy Art Market Editor, Margaret Carrigan, went to the new Pace Gallery building to talk to Mark Glimcher, the gallery's President and Chief Executive, on the eve of its opening. She began by asking him what's driving this evolution in the art world, and how is it changing gallery business in the 21st century. What's driving the change is what, same thing that drives the change in the arts, um, all the arts, it's the audience. Um, what we have seen over the last half uh, century is the role of art um, becoming more and more preeminent in the cultural landscape. Um, the number of collectors, my father used to say, number of contemporary collectors in America when he started in 1960 was 25. Um, how many art lovers were there? Many. But they were also a small group. I remember when I was a kid, my parents took us to a museum every Saturday. And very often we would go and see the Pollock at the Museum of Modern Art. And when you went to visit the Pollock at Museum of Modern Art, it was a place you'd sit down and you could hear people laughing. Um, you know, I could do that. Um, now people line up for hours to see a Pollock. Um, Sometimes an avant-garde succeeds. And when an avant-garde succeeds, um, there are very powerful uh, repercussions. <laughs> um, the art avant-garde of the 20th century 
um, succeeded in extending the perception of millions and millions of people around the world. And contemporary art is now an essential part of how many people's lives. We don't know. We don't know what the number is. I know that it's grown in the most shocking way of maybe any audience in the world. Of course, along with that, so has the collector base grown shockingly. Um, not as shockingly. <laughs> the, the, the number of people connected to art has grown even faster. Um, this is where our evolutionary pressure comes from. Um, when you have such uh, a demand for artists who were once sitting in their studio unrecognized, unknown, and misunderstood. Um, these are powerful visionary people. They're now plugging in to millions of people who want to receive that kind of visionary power. That changes everything. Um, it changes the economics of the situation, it drives um, professionalism, uh, and it requires um, a reimagining of our models. Um, this is happening everywhere, obviously. There's disruption occurring in all kinds of industries and areas in our society, from information and news to retail. Um, because the art business has continued as a incredibly successful market proposition, there's been a misunderstanding that it was somehow immune to change. That it was growing, but not changing. Um, but that's not true. <laughs> it is growing, but it is changing. And... Um, David and Ivan and Larry are all, you know, people who saw that very early on, and so did my father, before all of them, I'll say. Um, and there are many other dealers, young dealers, medium-sized dealers, small dealers, who see it too. Um, so all of this change tracks back to our audience. I think what's really interesting to me when you're talking about change is not, not just the physical change that you're undergoing yeah. here launching this new global headquarters um, and you know it's reflected the, the, the headquarterliness of it's reflected in, the, in its scale but then the scope of your programming is changing as well um, and it's you're starting to, to me it feels like you're kind of bringing you're, you're shifting your model to be a little bit more museum like and you've brought on an entire curatorial team, which is rather unique for a commercial mm -hmm. gallery. Um, and they're big names, too. You have Andrea Hickey from right. the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland, uh, Mark Beasley from the Hirshhorn. Beasley. <laughs> uh, and then you just announced the appointment of Oliver Schultz from MoMA PS1. Right. And there are others as well. And Mika from, from MoMA. Yeah, exactly. So. Why align this level of art historical scholarship with commercial dealership? So one phenomenon that happened in the last few years is that the power of the dealers went down. 
doesn't seem that way because we're growing and so forth. But but as an individual influencer on the artist, our power has been in decline for a long time, which is great because the power of elites to control the narrative has obviously been something that has been disrupted. What I recognized five or six years ago is that as our influence over the artists went down, the curator's influence has gone up. Curators used to function in a place at, of arm's length from artists. Uh, they were, you know, judge, jury, and executioner. Now they're advocate. Um, so that changed in the museum world. That's a radical change in the museum world. We didn't mediate that. They took that from us. <laughs> we didn't take that from them. And museums became advocates for certain artists certain art movements and curators became incredibly important I have artists who I'll say let's do this, this and this and they then get on the phone with their curator at Museum X and they say what do you think and if that curator says no they're not going to do it everybody knows that so I said hmm what do I need around here I need curators because they've created a kind of meaning and content matrix in this world that we can't replicate. We art dealers who are out there with our collectors, building collections, you know, in the studios dealing with all the day-to-day necessities of representing an artist. We can't be at every opening. We can't be in every poetry reading. We can't read every philosophical text that comes out. If we're going to understand the value proposition behind our artists, we're going to understand it with the help of curators. And we're going to promote it with the help of curators. So I decided to hand the programming, and I'm on this, I'm, I'm the head of that committee, okay? <laughs> but that committee is now in charge of how we are going to program the gallery globally. And we can already feel the results. I think in a lot of ways this, head, this new headquarters is a testament to what you and your father have been able to build. And it solidifies not only your, your footprint, but also the Pace legacy here. Right. So one question I have is, if you're kind of building up a, a gallery in this, in this new vein, in a, in a more mm-hmm. expansive, almost institutional way, right. why... Why not buy? Why leaks? Like, what, what is, where are you going? We tried. From there? We tried. <laughs> we tried. You cannot buy a piece of land in Chelsea. I mean, Kokosian was so smart. He did it a long time ago. But try to buy a piece of land in Chelsea now. We basically couldn't. We actually started looking in other neighborhoods and then we just kind of gave up. Now, we aren't in the real estate business. I mean, we do own the galleries down the street. Um, but um, we would have happily bought this property if we could have, but we have our fabulous um, partners in, in, in the Weinbergs, and um, it, it probably is a little bit out of our comfort zone, you know, of, of how to devote, you know, the resources and the efforts um, and the, and the real estate intelligence necessary to build the buildings. So we're also ha- we're happy we have them. But absolutely, the legacy is about something 
that goes beyond just the Wilmshire family. You've kind of mentioned to me before that the gallery business is increasingly becoming less of a retail and showroom business. So how will this new headquarters kind of help you in your own personal evolution as the gallery? Well, first of all, it brings everybody together, which is what allows those conversations to happen. Um, it gives a kind of um, amplifier to the artist's kind of multi-hyphenate ambitions um, and gives us the possibility to do things that, you know, you have the white walls of the gallery, it's all about what you can't do there. And, and what you do do there is validated and vindicated by all the things you can't. Um, you're not going to show design, you're not going to have music, you're not going to... So we think that is kind of crumbling. And um, we obviously see, you know, that we need to break all those boundaries. You know, six years ago, uh, Peter Boris, who been the only person who's been here longer than me, um, came into my office and said, I want you to look at this artist team lab. And I was like, oh, God, you know, no, 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 no. You know. He's like, it's 400 people in Japan. Like, oh, no. And um, we, he forced me to go to Japan and, and meet the guys and, um, and girls who run that place. And there were a few things like that that had a big effect on how we see the future. Um, going to Silicon Valley had a big effect on how we see things. And um, all of those, um, you know, uh, Molly Dent Brocklehurst did the same thing with Random International early on. Um, they all came from the team, you know. So one of the priorities is to assemble the team. Um, and that does require a space, a different kind of space now. Um, and that is the hidden, like, secret, you know, core of this new place, is that it allows the team to do something together that being in six locations scattered around the city never would. So. Well, congratulations on that. That yeah. is a very beautiful new location you have. Thank you. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. Pace's new gallery at 540 West 25th Street, New York, opens on the 14th of September. And that's it for this week. You can read all the latest news online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them and if you enjoy it, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and we're on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David is also the editor. Join us next week for an in-depth discussion on museum ethics. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.